0: Hope Church. Awesome. All right. Let's get started here. Obviously, um, some of our folks, I believe, are visiting their fathers today, <laughs> but uh, we are glad for all of our fathers that are here and that we can enjoy Father's Day together, um, worshiping the Lord um, today. And we're going to continue through our study of 1 Samuel this morning. Hopefully, get a couple tie ins. So I'm going to admit that it's not the easiest passage to tie in to a day like Father's Day. It's one of the things that happens when you're generally, we, we sometimes take exceptions, but generally, we just teach them straight through books. Um, and so sometimes it lines up great for a holiday, and sometimes it does not. Um, but there's some things in here that are definitely going to work. So be encouraged uh, this morning uh, for our fathers, for our dads, um, but we want to learn uh, this morning from the Lord, to worship him um, is why we are here, and to p- give praise um, to his name. So let's pray, and then uh, we'll begin in First Samuel chapter 27. So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege to be here today, for your many blessings to us. We pray that you would encourage us from your word that you would help us to learn and to grow from it. And we just thank you for how much you love us that we can call you Heavenly Father. And in your great love for us, you did not spare uh, your your only begotten son, but send him to the cross so that we could be in relationship with you we could be called sons and daughters uh, we thank you and jesus we thank you for the price that you um, that you paid so we could enter in um, to that love and to that grace we give you praise this morning jesus in your precious name amen all right so i'm going to preface as we read, you know, 1 Samuel 27 isn't long. It's just 12 verses. Um, but I'm going to preface it again with just saying, you know, we've had some difficult passages, some difficult things, and things that kind of make you go, oh, kind of wish that wasn't there um, type stuff in 1 Samuel already. There's a little, there's some of that, there's some of that again here um, in 1 Samuel 27. Um, as David goes into, you know, warrior mode. Um, and so we'll read the passage, you'll understand what I'm saying, then we'll talk about some of it for um, the historical context. So it says, then David said to himself, this, chapter 27, verse 1, And David said to himself, now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over, he and 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, if now I have found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country that I might live there, for why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites, For they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come to sure, even as far as the land of Egypt. David attacked the land and did not leave a man or woman alive, and he took away the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, and the clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. Now Achish said, Where have you made a raid today? And David said, Against the Negev of Judah, and against the Negev of the Jeremilites, and against the Negev of the Kenites. David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, otherwise they will tell about us, saying, so David has done, and so has been his practice all this time he has lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, he has surely made himself odious among his people. Therefore, he will become my servant forever. Okay, so let's talk about a few things um, here in this passage. So at the beginning of it, David has in his mind, what does he say? One day I will perish at the hand of Saul. He's worried that Saul is going to get him one day. And so his strategy is, you know, to go to the Philistines. Now remember, David has warred against the Philistines. He's, you know, he's defeated Goliath. Gath is where Goliath was from, back in Goliath's hometown. But there is that, you know, this isn't, this isn't uncommon in human history, where the, the theory of the, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And the bigger picture is that the Philistines want to war against Israel. And Saul controls, still controls Israel and the army of Israel. And so having David as an ally weakens Saul, weakens Saul's ability to defend or to attack. And puts the Philistines in a stronger, you know, position. From the Philistine perspective, having David is a major win. We see all the time. You see in just very recent history, unlikely allies to fight against a common foe. Right? That that happens, you know, regularly. Things, alliances that you don't think would be made and wouldn't be made without a common enemy. If they weren't the common enemy, they'd fight each other. But with a common enemy, you know they'll they'll join t- forces together. And so that is uh, an interesting thing. Now we have to look at this, and there's a there's we can say something, but we can only say so much. We we don't see David explicitly seeking God's counsel in this decision and to go and do this. We don't. We don't see that he didn't. However, I would argue that when he does seek the Lord on these type of decisions, like numerous times, and and again in the future, we'll see, and David sought the the Lord's counsel. that The scripture normally tells us when he does. You can disagree with my perspective on this. You can take a different view on it. That's fine. My perspective on it is that when David seeks the Lord, the scripture tells us that he does. And that his decision here is based out of fear. Now, I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. Yet, God has delivered Saul into his hand twice already and has promised him the kingdom. He has a misplaced fear. And misplaced fear leads to practical decisions, but not to godly decisions so he has a misplaced fear because his only fear, David's only fear in his life should be the fear of God. Fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That, that, that should be David's fear because David is safe in God's hands and God has made certain promises to him. I mean, David of all people, because, I mean, I, I want to be, you know, I, this might sound an exaggeration, but again, David has defeated Goliath. David has won you know, battles and has been in you know, hand-to-hand combat numerous times at this point and has come out on the other side because God has been with him. David has killed the lion and the bear by the strength of God. David is in a position, a favored position with God that he could literally walk into the forest and there could be a hundred bears there and He wouldn't be touched. He wouldn't be harmed. Because God was with him. Now, not everybody gets that promise. Because God had promised him he was going to be the king. He was going to sit there. I mean, he can walk through the forest with impunity. And we're not telling, I mean, you're not saying, well, don't abuse that. Don't be foolish, of course. But he is as secure as it comes. Now, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, our eternity is as secure as it comes. Because our salvation is based on what Jesus did on the cross for us, not what we have accomplished. It's simply that we have trusted in the right one. We use this object all the time. You know, everybody here that's in front of me right now is sitting in a chair. and, And when you sat in that chair, you trusted, you looked at it. And just like, you didn't like, have a cognitive you know, process of, but just your experience and everything else said, that is secure for me to make myself vulnerable and to put all my weight there. But here's the reality of it. It's the chair that matters. And how the chair was built that matters. You could have had a tiny bit of faith and sat down in that chair. Or a ton of faith and sat down in that chair. The result is the same. It either held you or it didn't. You have a little bit of faith in Jesus is better than a lot of faith in yourself. A little bit of faith in Jesus is better than a lot of faith in all the gods of this world. It's the object of the faith. Jesus says the faith of a mustard seed. It's the object of 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 our faith that matters. So we are secure in his hands and nothing can touch us without God being okay with that. And again, that doesn't mean that we go and take foolish risks. That doesn't mean that we intentionally, you know, go into bad places at bad times of night and jump up and down and say, you know, you only can hurt me if God is okay with you hurting me. I'm not advocating that we do that. But when God has called you to something, we should be able to be obedient and not to be driven by fear. I preached that to myself this morning. But we can just be obedient and not be driven by fear. But it appears here that David is driven by fear. So that's the first part of it. Then the second part of it, um, which I'm going to view as a separate thing because David could have done this from you know, the wilderness of Zin where he was hiding out or you know, in the desert where he was hiding, any of the places he was hiding out, he could have done these same things that he, would, that he did in terms of these raids. He wasn't doing that just because he was you know, there in the, in, in the land of the Philistines. So he makes these raids, and these raids were were common in these times. We we read, you know, we'll we'll read about the Amalekites making a, a raid um, in just a couple of chapters. So it's just it's an it's a it's an ugly war. Let's put it that way. It's an ugly war. Um, it's it's its tactics are. Guerrilla type tactics um, that we would, as we would refer to it today, um, it's not pretty. It's not pretty. Now, in the historical context, we need to understand a couple of things because David, you know, he is being deceitful because the Philistines, the king of the Philistines, Agus thinks that that David is going and that he is attacking who? He's attacking the people of Judah. The, the Jeremelites and the Kenites, were the Jeremelites and the Kenites were you know, allied you know, with Israel. Um, you know, we, we already read about the Kenites when the Kenites were living with the Amalekites and they were given warning hey, leave, because war is coming against the Amalekites. And the Kenites have been a constant ally. And so they got out of the way. Okay? So. You know that, and we've talked about this, you know, it, not too long ago with with the Kenites and different Kenites um, in the Scripture that um, were were very were helpful. And so we don't want to. We're not going to repeat all of that this morning, but just say they're they're on the they're the good guys, um, relatively speaking. And I, I need to say that relatively speaking, because God is holy, and the entire human race is fallen. So you might be on the side of the good guys, but the good guys are also broken and fallen and lost before God and, and often do dishonorable things in the discharge of, what they're, of, of justice. But there, there is a difference many times when you're talking about war and fighting between good guys and, and bad guys. Uh, and that's an important distinction to make. You want to be on the side of the good guys. You don't want to be on the side of the bad guys. I mean, it's simple to say. But sometimes you know, we need to be very careful of how we view those things and how we're deciding right and wrong and that we, don't, that we don't judge good and bad based on our alliances. We judge good and bad based on God's truth. Even that means we have to be critical of our own, our own alliances. At times, it's necessary that followers of Jesus stand for truth, regardless. So, who is he actually attacking? The Gershurites, the Gizerites, the Amalekites—these are called the inhabitants of the of the land from ancient times. Now, we have to go back to Deuteronomy nine five because this is the key to this whole thing. When God promised. I actually, I'll read verses 4 and 5. of uh, Deuteronomy 9, 4 and 5. Do not say to your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. That's the pe- these people groups. Do not say, do not say, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Where it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart or the integrity of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your father, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So God has given two reasons that the Amalekites and these other groups would be attacked and would be set out First is in be- the Canaanites, you know, and others are, are listed in, these, in this group. First, because of their wickedness, and because of their witness, wickedness and God's knowledge of their wickedness, God had promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that, that that land would be their land. But it's not because of the righteousness of the Hebrews. Because, even though the Hebrews often did, you know, the wrong things... But it was the wickedness of these other nations that's the main driver. The exceeding wickedness. And when I talk about that, we're talking about you know, human child sacrifice. That's one of the things that these these nations um, did in those times. That, that, that's the, the level of depravity that we, are, that we are talking about here. And so, this... This warring against them can be taken in a historical context that David is in some ways fulfilling what was still left to be done. Because all of the fighting should have already been done. Joshua and Judges. There shouldn't have been any more fighting to do by this point. Uh, but it was because of the disobedience and the lack of faith and integrity of of the Israelites prior that there's still somebody to fight. They should have already been, as it says here, thrust out of the land, pushed out from those areas. Now we don't like this sort of talk because today any people group that is being you know a, you know fought against by another people group um, you know we, we immediately and rightfully so have a reaction against that you know you read about one you know just in um, Mali in, in Africa just this not more than two weeks ago uh, I think less than that um, you know one people group went into another into the village of another people group and you know wiped it out like that causes us to be like, that's seriously wrong. Because human beings don't have the right to do that to each other. Okay? In this case, back in Deuteronomy, this is God's judgment. God has the right to do that. But there is a historical context here about the nation of Israel, the land that God had given them, and all of that. We don't have those sorts of mandates today. We're in a different spiritual economy than what they were under with the the theocracy of the nation of Israel and the law and all of those things. We are under the law of Jesus Christ. And part of that is to love our enemies. You know, we don't wish the destruction of people groups now we may ask for god's judgment on people but there's a difference there you see what i'm, what I'm getting? you know we we say god you know may god sh- strike down human traffickers or terrorists or this or that or the other thing but we don't go you know may god take out a people group we don't do that there's nothing there for there's no place for that there's no place for that in our, in our New Testament theology. It's just not there. Um, so we have to be careful about that. Again, remember the Amalekites in particular were singled out because of as what it says in Deuteronomy 25, 17 through 19, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around and the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. It was because of the wickedness of the Amalekites and that was made known in how you know, they particularly struck the vulnerable. As the you know the Hebrews, the Hebrews who have been Freed out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt are coming up out of there. And then those who are elderly, those who are weak, those who are disabled are the ones being struck down by the Amalekites. Okay, so that's why God's judgment was on them. But even then, and we've talked about this before, they had many years to repent. And we can just contrast them um, with the Ninevites who were exceedingly wicked and Jonah preaches to them and they, they they repent. The Amalekites, you never find the Amalekites repenting of their wickedness. You never find that. There's a place for repentance. Individually, as a community, as a church, as a nation, there's you know, there's all sorts of levels of repentance, um, but repentance is important and it is good. So, what I want to just conclude with on that is that David very well may have been an instrument of judgment against the Amalekites and the others that are mentioned here, and and he may not have been. You know, because we don't again we don't have it explicit. We don't have an explicit command for him to go in and do that though there was the general command for that to be done does that make sense so and just because something is right to do doesn't mean it's the right time place person situation to do it okay so I'm not gonna this is one of those passages for me personally where the first part of it um, and David not seeking the Lord about going to you know Live live in Philistine territory. We don't see it anyway. Leads me also to think that he's, um, you know, going a, a bit out on his own here at, at this stage. And that's just in general, not wise. And that's my take on that. Um, you know, so we want to make sure that we are doing what the Lord wants done, how he wants it done, when he wants it done. That's the application. And so there we go on that. Um, let's try to get through um, some more. Because there's a lot. I'm just going to read this, chapter 28. We're going to talk briefly about it because it's important to know for the context of the story, but there's um, a limited amount that we're going to do with it. So in chapter 28, verses 1 to verse 1, it says, Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. So the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem. And Saul gathered all Israel together and camped in Gilboa. When Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. And then Saul said to his servant, Seek for me a woman who is a medium that I may go and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. Okay, so let's stop there for a minute. Um, So first part of that is, you know, Israel and Philistines are going to go to war. Achish says, you know, you're going to go with me. David says, okay. Now, we're going to talk about that part later because there's a better place to talk about that. But then you have this context of Samuel is dead and Saul had done... Correctly, there are times there are things that Saul does that are right because he's not wrong. You know, we have the saying that you know even a broken clock is right twice a day. Okay, so um, Saul does some things that are right, um, and he had uh, probably at, at Samuel's um, encouragement, you know, earlier in his his life when he was. You know, doing better um, that the, the mediums and the spiritists were, were, were gone. That wasn't that practice wasn't allowed um, anymore. This, these occult um, practices um, were forbidden. So that's a, that was a, a good thing. But now he's in a situation where he's afraid because he sees the number of the Philistines that he's going to have to fight against his heart trembles And so he, you know, seeks the Lord. The Lord doesn't answer him in the different ways that the Lord has answered, you know, previously. Um, I'm not sure why he's surprised at this because the Lord has already rejected him and he hasn't repented. Okay, so, you know, shocker. Might be a problem there. Um, But then you notice, he had kicked the people out, you know, we're going to do away with these practices um, now I'm, I, I'm, I'm not getting the answer I want. And instead of, again, instead of repenting, now he's going to go and call upon a medium. So you see, again, the fickleness of Saul. Saul does what's right when it's convenient. Let, let's not be people who just do what's right when it's convenient. Because you, you end up with all sorts of mess like this right here, Right? Verse 8 Then Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went, he and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night and said, Conjure up for me, please, and bring up for me one whom I shall name to you. But the woman said to him, Behold, you know what Saul has done, how he's cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to bring about my death? Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. The woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, why have you deceived me, for you are Saul? The king said to her, do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine coming up from out of the earth. He said to her, what is his form? And he said, an old man is coming up, and he is wrapped with a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. And then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am greatly distressed. For the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore I called you that you may make known to me what I should do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? The Lord has done according as he has spoke through me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and giving it to your neighbor, to David. And you did not obey the Lord and did not execute his fierce wrath on Amalek. So the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord also will give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. That's pretty significant. Um, so let's, let's just finish it out. 20 through 25. Then Saul immediately fell full length upon the ground, was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was terrified and said to him, Behold, your maidservant has obeyed you, and I've taken my life in my hand, and I've listened to your words which you spoke to me. So now also please listen to the voice of your maidservant and let me see the piece of bread before you that you may eat it and have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. However, his servants, together with him, urged him, and he listened to them. So he rose from the ground and sat on the bed. And the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly slaughtered it, and she took flour, kneaded it, and baked unleavened bread from it. And she brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. So there's a few things you know here that um, you know are are important. One. Is that th- this chapter shows us that the occult is real, like there's, the, and and that people are able to access things on a spiritual spiritual realm that they should not access. Um, so there's that um, you know aspect you know of it. Um, the the um, we live many times in such a materialistic society, the enemy doesn't you know, need to mess up a lot of people you know, in, that have material goods and things with this sort of thing. They're so already distracted. But the point of everything of the enemy's tactics is what? To, to take away the glory of God, to get people focused on things other than the true and living God. He's got a million and one tricks of how to accomplish that. Uh, but in many parts of the world, you don't have to convince people that there's like spiritual realities that are out there. Um, so, because they they, under, they understand it through their own, you know, experiences, um, and so that's that's something that is um, that is really you know important here. We also see. You know, something different, I guess, with the Old Testament. Um, those who were saints and those who, I mean, those you know, who were believers in God um, and those that, that weren't, that at this at this point, um, you know, there's some, some holding <laughs> pattern. Um, we know for followers, of, for believers of Jesus today, um, what the scripture tells us in Corinthians that to be absent from the body is to be present, you know, with the Lord. And though our physical body Will you know be renewed, um, you know a recreation, and will be um, you know we do have, we will have physical bodies in in terms of the um, in terms of eternity. Um, we, we don't go into like a we're not going to be like a sleep or something like that. You know we'll be our bodies will be asleep, but our spirits and perhaps some sort of temporary housing that we will have. Um, we'll be alive a, a and with God and aware. Okay, so there, there's there's that element, you know, of it. Um, you know, somebody that tries to take all of their theology of what happens to people when they die from 1 Samuel 28, you know, isn't going to be right because they don't have the context of the rest of scripture um, and how things change post-Christ. Does that make sense? Um, so, you know, we have to, you can flush that out a little bit more. Um, there, there's one other. This, I mean, that's all very serious stuff. But we, I mean, we see there's a reason spiritually why we need to put on our armor. You know, because there is a spiritual battle at play. But here's the bottom line: without repentance and, and having a hard attitude of that throughout life, things get problematic. We always need to be willing to humble ourselves before God, um, and so that—that's the solution. That was Saul's solution all along, but he doesn't really, really take it in that way. Now, here's here's one thing. So Saul, obviously, you know, he hasn't eaten in a long time, and he's about to have to go fight this war, and he's going to die in it. But you know, you better like have some strength for it, right? So it's like, hey. Why don't you get a little bit of food? Let me just make you something real quick. Now, what's funny is, you know, just thinking about different cultural contexts, so our real quick is like go to the refrigerator and we got some like, you know, sandwich meat and everything that's sitting in there and some cheese and some bread and everything's like on hand and like in two minutes, there's a sandwich on your plate. You know, I mean, or hey, we don't have anything in the house right now. I have a pizza here in 30. Or I can run in the drive-through and be back in ten. Like, what do you want? I got all sorts of options. So here is like, hey, hold on, a quick minute. I gotta go kill a cow, and then I gotta, I gotta like butcher that thing real quick so we get some right meat off of. it. We gotta cook that. We gotta need some bread. We gotta cook some bread. Like, even doing that, even doing that fast, we would be there like. Am I ever? Am I ever going to get this food? You know, like, it's just funny. We have no, I mean, it's just one of those things that culturally we have such a hard time with patience. We have such a hard time with things that require patience because we can get stuff so quickly. Yeah, you know, I mean, even just a comp- like a good, you know, something that you wanted to buy, and it's like, back then, it's like, you know what? So, I'm gonna. I live up here in, in Galilee, and, and where they have that is over in Jerusalem. So, I'm gonna take like um, a couple of weeks. I'll be back in a couple of weeks once I go get that thing. And we're like, hey, so there's this thing in China, and um, it can be at my door in like four days. <laughs> and that's like not rushed. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, that's, that's the craziness. That we live in, but also what makes it hard for us to stop, to slow down, to listen to God. It's a barrier for us. The instant, the instant information. And I think sometimes God just doesn't want to be treated like our Amazon shopping cart or our Siri, or our Google, where we just say, what's the answer to this? He doesn't want to be treated like that. And then we get frustrated and impatient, so we look for answers elsewhere. Preaching to myself in that, but we've got to be really careful about that, that we don't, take that, I mean, it's, and and I'm not saying it's bad that we can go and have food in our refrigerators and that we can order something off of Amazon and have it the next day or in two days. Um, I'm just saying we have to recognize that that affects our patience levels, that that affects how we view the world and how we, make decisions and how fast we want to make decisions and how it can be a barrier to just spending a lot of time on our knees in prayer or a lot of time before God seeking an answer and seeking his will. A lot of times we just don't have we just don't have the patience for it, which is to our detriment. And so just encouragement on that So I take a breath and go, God's not Google or Siri. He's much better than that. I'm going to take some time and figure this out. Let him let him teach me. But the biggest problem, you know, Saul had, we go to finish up the morning this morning, is this that he rejected the way of God and the key areas of obedience. And so by doing so, he brought misery on himself and on his family. We've seen that. And on other people. Now, this is to to tie this in, because you know, Saul is a father. And and I don't want to, I'm not going to be negative this morning. This is going to turn really positive, but just bear with me for one minute. Saul's failures of obedience and repentance and intimacy with God, like, that affects his kids. Especially Jonathan, who is a you know ends up being a really godly, wonderful man despite all of that. So again, can't use it as an excuse. You've got a bad father, you can't use it as an excuse. Jonathan didn't use it as an excuse. You know, you follow that example. But Saul does bring pain and trouble to everyone, to the entire nation. Now, we live today in this kind of upside down world that wants to tell us a lot of the time, that dads don't matter. I mean, they're actually, not even necessary. Because you can you can live without them. You know, you don't need dads. You know, as a whole, as a whole world. And there's there's, it's like a movement today that basically, is, you know, in the whole world is basically like, you know, you could just eliminate this whole concept of dadhood, fatherhood altogether, and we would be just fine. Just unnecessary. Now, I find it interesting. We haven't quite gone that far with mothers yet, but we're there when it comes to dads. Except for Father's Day. This is our day. This is an exception day. And on this day, all of a sudden, my Facebook proved this this morning all of a sudden, dads are great, <laughs> dads are necessary, dads are fantastic. And that everyone has the best dad. That's what my Facebook. That's what my Facebook told me today. Somebody's lying, but anyway. But the rest of the year, tomorrow, dads, you'll go back to being a bumbling idiot that can't fight his way out of a wet paper bag. You'll be the brunt of every joke. You're going to be on the wrong end of it one way or another. A narcissistic bully, or some weak, pathetic thing chasing around the bottom of some woman's skirt like a little puppy. That's how the world wants us. Be the narcissistic bully, or be the little puppy dog. And it's, I mean, it's negative. It's negative out there. But what God has for us is for you know godly fathers to lead well. Here's the reality, and this is why I think the enemy, especially through media, mass media, attacks fatherhood so much is because there is a reality that when there is a godly father who is leading well that the rest of the family is well positioned for lives of joy and purpose. If you have a father in a home who is sold out to God and loves God, the rest of that family is gonna be well positioned to live lives of purpose and joy. The easiest way to take down any family is take out dad. And there are a hundred different ways to take out dad. Dads have to be really careful Dads need to look out for each other and help each other to be really careful. Y'all don't need me to make a list of all the different ways that dad can get taken out. We know them. Y'all need me to make a list and give you a list? It's, it's, it's long, it's, it's bad. It's ugly. Because if dad gets taken down, it has really negative effects for that nuclear family and enough families get taken out in terms of dad being taken down. You don't have the cultural building blocks with which to make a just society. If you don't have enough building blocks to, then, because you've got to have enough dads who are doing things right in order to make up for a, a, you know, the dads who aren't doing things right. At some point that ratio becomes really problematic and things get almost impossible. And that's we see it We see it all in our communities. We see it in our entire nation. We see it devastating poor communities, but the middle class and upper middle class and beyond is not far behind. The destruction that is being wrecked on children because dads don't have their stuff together. And it starts with that relationship with God. So how do we change it? How can a a father how how can a man be a father that honors God is the best dad that he personally is capable of being and the best dad for those kids that God has given him best husband that he can be the first thing is number one decide it's a decision being a godly man is is a decision it's a decision Now, the great thing about that is you don't have to wait until you're a husband or a father to decide that that's the sort of person you want to be, that's the sort of man you want to be. You can decide that, you know, when you're 12 years old and work towards it, but you have to decide. Joshua twenty four fifteen And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve Whether the gods which your fathers served That were on the other side of the river Or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell But as for me and my house We will serve the Lord As for me and my house We will serve the Lord And in this day and age that we live in We can tell the world We can say to everybody We, can say to, we, actually, we need to preach this in the church okay In all the churches You can go after the gods of materialism. You can go with the gods of sexual depravity. You can go with the gods of narcissism, the gods of selfishness, you can go with the gods of pride, you can go with all of these. We need to say that to the church. The, the, in Ezekiel, God tells the nation of Israel, it's like provoking them, wouldn't you just go and go to all your idols? Because that provoking is supposed to cause a person to go, no, no, I don't want to do that. that. That's not good. That's not going to be good. I want the true and living God. The church needs to, the church needs to be provoked. And I'm not talking, and, and in that case, in this context, we talk about church a lot in this context I'm not talking about the pseudo churches and all those things I'm talking about like true churches that preach the gospel who have believers in them the church of God needs to be provoked fathers to make a decision decide what God you're going to serve and to live life according to that that's the that's the first everything else follows from there But that first key point is have to decide. Have to decide. That's the first key point. The second is to be humble. Make make a decision and be humble. God gives grace to the humble. It says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So be humble. We need to be humble. Because then that humility is saying, you know, I, I don't have all the answers. I don't have everything figured out. But, but we've decided we're following God, and, and we're going to humble ourselves before him, and God's going to help us to be humble. And that goes in with the third. It's to remember that outside of Jesus, you can do nothing of, of a, that has both a positive and eternal value. John 15, 4 and 5, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. That's true for every follower of Jesus. But certainly we have to view that as true of, of, of being fathers. But I can't raise my kids well without the help of Jesus. I can't raise my kids well if I don't abide in Jesus. So that means I need to spend more time with Jesus. And that's just a question for us. When our kids are old enough to really evaluate things and look back, are they going to look back and say, yeah, my dad... He had his abode (laughs) in Jesus. Might not use that that terminology or those words, but that's what they mean. Like, my my dad spent a lot of time with Jesus. And because he spent a lot of time with Jesus, he he raised us well. Or are they going to look and go, you know, my dad, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I think he loved God. But, We don't want that. Abide. And the fourth thing is, is to be eternally minded. Colossians 3, 1 and 2 If then you were raised with Christ seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God set your mind on things above not on things on the earth. And that's real, real important for fathers and as we raise our kids, we need to have the long-term view in hand. See, we have to be eternally minded. We have to have our eyes on, fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, if we have any hopes that our children will do the same. Do we expect our kids to have a better relationship with God than we have? That they're going to be better followers of Jesus than we are? I think a lot of times we do. So when they do things that don't honor God, boy, we let them know. But then do we evaluate ourselves the same? We'll cry over their sin. Do we cry over our own sin? Our own failures, our own fallenness, our own brokenness? But, when, but I want to just hammer home in my own mind, in my own heart this morning. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Again, that long-term goal. Because I know we all care that our kids learn what they need to learn, that they're, you know, they have academic success, that they're physically healthy, that you know, they can, as much as their body is, is capable of, that, that their physical bodies are healthy and that they enjoy, you know, activity. That they you know, they play hard, they work hard, they they learn how to do hard things. Like we want that for our kids. But to what goal? To what end? Because what really matters is that when our, our children, whether they die young or old, whenever it is, that they know the Lord that they're believers and that we have set them up to do well for when they stand before the judgment seat of Christ. As believers, they give account for the lives that they've lived and what they've done with the gifts that they've been entrusted with. The spiritual gifts that they've been given and the academic opportunities they've had and the athletic opportunities they've had and the social opportunities they've had and the travel opportunities that they've had and all that they've been given. That it was toward the end of that Jesus would say, well done, my good and faithful servant, to our children. Now, unless the Lord comes back soon, we pray that that's when our children are adults, you know, old people. But whenever age it happens, have we set them up for the years, however many years, days, hours, minutes they have, that they would be honorable before God? And this is just a conviction for myself as I preach to myself that I have caught myself spending far more time considering their academic um, success, their, you know, their outcomes, their levels and all of that stuff, and their athletic things, then I'm going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ one day. Their Bible preparation, their knowledge of the scriptures, their understanding of how to navigate the world as a follower of Jesus, their character development for what is right and wrong their willingness to step out in faith their willingness to take risk their willingness to do hard things their willingness not to give up when things get tough in a spiritual sense but to develop them spiritually has to be our number 1 priority And we love our kids and I know that in those other, other areas we will just do and we will make sacrifices and we will pay the money and we will take the time and we will do all the things. How much more on a spiritual level should the priority and the emphasis and yes, even the money and the time be spent to make sure that we have invested well. Because like all of us, and I mean I preach this to all of us and myself, when you die, it doesn't, your portfolio of assets, it's not going with you. Your athletic prowess, not going with you. Your smarts, not going with you. You'll get, I think we'll get better. I think we'll get better of those. We'll get a better body and a better mind. You know, all of those things. Looking forward to that. We'll get better of those. But you can't take those with you. But your character, what you've done for the kingdom of God, the sacrifices that have made for the kingdom of God, those we will take with us. Things of eternal value. If you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. But here's a key to it, dads. If we don't want our kids to waste their lives, we say, don't waste your life. You know, that's a message our generation has heard. Don't waste your life. It's a message every generation needs to hear. Don't waste your life. If we don't want our kids to waste their lives, we better not waste ours. As dad goes, so goes a family. I know that is so politically incorrect in our day and age. I do not care. I just don't, I mean, I'm getting to the point now. I mean, I used to be, well, got to be sensitive and people's perspectives and these things. As the dad goes, so goes the family. Truth. I'm going to preach it. I'm going to preach it. Because that's what I read in the scripture. And and if we have to back down from preaching the scripture, we can close up shop. We'll be done. We're not going to back down. As dad goes, so goes the family. There's responsibility. But there's also opportunity. You know, our kids are going to say, I love you, dad, and you're a great dad, and all those things. Man, what matters is if Jesus can tell you, the Heavenly Father can tell you, at the end of your days, you are a good dad. That's what matters. That's what matters. Let's get it. And I don't care what level you're at. Say, man, I'm a, I'm a good dad today. Hey, man, praise God. Praise God you're a good dad. Let's get a little more. Give a little more time with Jesus. Let's get a little more. There's always room for improvement. Always room for improvement. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We pray that you would help us. We thank you that your word is true. Pray for our fathers in the room that you would help us not to provoke our children to wrath, but to be kind and gentle loving and truthful, firm but not overbearing. Help us to lead them well. Most of all, help us to be fathers who spend time with you, Father, who might learn from you We would be close to you and that we would lead our children out of our intimacy with you. We ask it in your name, Jesus, and we give thanks for that bread and that cup this morning. We pray for each one of us that you would help us to draw close to you and thank you that you are present. In your name, Jesus, we pray, amen.